I'm Kate Young, and you're listening to This is Purdue, the official podcast for Purdue University. As a Purdue alum and Indiana native, I know firsthand about the family of students and professors who are in it together, persistently pursuing and relentlessly rethinking. Who are the next game changers, difference makers, ceiling breakers, innovators? Who are these boilermakers? Join me as we feature students, faculty, and alumni taking small steps toward their giant leaps and inspiring others to do the same. That's my next big aha, is being a trustee and being entrusted with one of the keys to the future of this historic place. In this episode of This is Purdue, we're talking to a very special Boilermaker whose vulnerability, resiliency, and kind and genuine spirit is sure to make your day. Sean Taylor is a Cranert School of Management alumni, successful entrepreneur, and Purdue's newest Board of Trustees member. You'll hear Sean describe his childhood growing up on the south side of Chicago, his experience as a first-generation college graduate, and the impact Purdue's very own Dr. Cornell A. Bell, the first director and chairman of the Business Opportunity Program, had on Sean's life both pre- and post-college. This emotional and motivating episode showcases true Boilermaker persistence and spirit. We'll kick it off with Sean taking us back to November of 1970, when he first heard about Purdue University and first met Dr. Bell. I was a football player in high school, and we were in the playoffs. It was a Monday, and it was a parent-teacher kind of half day. My mother and my best friend slash teammate's mother came up. And Dr. Bell was on campus visiting with, just so happened he got assigned to our high school counselor, Ms. Dolores Deasy, uh, who I'm still in touch with. And Ms. Deasy told Dr. Bell about Tony and myself. And when she was escorting him out of the building, our mothers were in the hallway talking. And so she introduced Dr. Bell to our mothers. Unbeknownst to either one of us at the time, he had scheduled to come out Sunday of that week to talk to both of us. And we live in different parts of town. Unfortunately, that Saturday, I didn't know it Monday, but that Saturday wound up being the end of my high school career because we lost the game. So Sunday, I wasn't in a very good mood. We lived in row apartments as opposed to the, you know, the high rises that you typically see in major cities. And I was sitting in my mother's bedroom, looking out the window, replaying almost every play in my head. And, you know, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? Of course, I did everything perfect, but, you know, but I just, I really was in a foul mood waiting for Dr. Bell to come. I didn't even know his name. And Dr. Bell pulls up in a Cadillac. It was a burgundy sedan deville four-door with a white vinyl top. And I raise up and I look out the window and I'm like, who is this? And he gets out of the car. And I've told this story a thousand times. And he's got on a fedora hat, which I didn't know that's what they were then, a London fog trench coat and a three-piece suit. And my comment was to myself, who is this brother? It was like Superman, right? And I yelled downstairs, Ma, he's here. And she said, well, come down and let him in. And I go downstairs and I let him in the house. He introduces himself. And and I had a big fro then and I was a lot smaller, but muscular. I didn't crack a smile. I was Joe Cool. And he comes in the house and we had very little furniture in our apartment. And my mom was cooking Sunday dinner. She she was world known for fried chicken. It was the first comment Dr. Bell made was about, 
can I have some chicken? She goes, well, it's not ready yet. And we sit around the kitchen table. It was like being recruited for football. And for three hours, he dazzled me. Sorry, this always happens when I tell a story. He talked about Sonia Winslet, Cynthia Barnes, and Roland Parrish, and other students who had um, started on BOP years before me. And I was just in amazement. But I was too cool. I wasn't showing anything. And he started talking about the money that they were making, going to work for companies I'd never heard of. I still had some hope that I would get a scholarship to a major university. At the time, it was potentially between the University of Iowa and Western. Unfortunately, both of those fell through. And I remember calling Dr. Bell in December and saying, what do I need to do to be on your program? And he told me to get my transcripts. And he had this little trifold brochure that I'm sure your photographer took all the pictures for back then. And it was that simple, filling out this little application, which was just the personal data. And I mailed it to them and the school sent my transcripts. I don't know, a month or so later, he called me and told me that I got accepted and uh, would be on this program that summer. And that was the first time I heard of Dr. Bell. Little did I know that the program that is now named after him would change my life and the life of my family for generations to come. And all because your mom ran into the high school guidance counselor in the hallway at your high school. Even more random than that, that he was assigned to my high school counselor. Could have been any other counselor who I may or may not have had a relationship with. I surely wasn't the smartest student at Chicago Vocational High School, but given my status as a really good athlete and I was on the National Honor Society, so I was a decent student, it made a difference. And so Tony and I, we were roommates on Bob and roommates for two years here at at Purdue. He even went as far as to twist my arm to major in accounting, which I was terrified of. And I remember sitting in his office downstairs in Cranert. I mean, he was relentless. I said, well, tell you what, Doc Bell, I'll, I'll cut you a deal. This was the spring of my freshman year. I said, if I get good grade in management 200 and my out was, and I liked it, I'd study accounting. And he goes, well, what's a good grade? I said, a B or better. He said, you have a deal. I fell in love with it. And the rest was history. I graduated in four years with distinction and top 10% of my class. I had 11 job offers coming out of school and ended up going to work for Arthur Anderson in Dallas. And I've been in Texas ever since June of 1982. I reside in Houston now. So as you can hear, Sean continues to hold so much love and admiration for Dr. Bell and has so much pride in his Purdue journey. I asked Sean what his mom thought about his opportunity to attend Purdue as a first-generation college student, and he opens up a bit more about his childhood and his strong relationship with his mom. I grew up in the projects on the south side of Chicago. I'm the youngest of four, a single mom. I was the first one to go to college. My two brothers decided to go into the military, you know, one during Vietnam, the other after, but he, the second one made a career out of it. And so he wound up going to college later in life while he was in the Air Force. And then my sister, uh, who's 12 years older than me, had started working for the Chicago Police Department right out of high school in data processing, which has she stayed with that, who knows where she had gone with technology. But she decided to go to nursing school years later and became a registered nurse. And then my oldest brother, just, he went, stopped and went, never finished. So I was the first one to go, first one to graduate. So I didn't know what I didn't know. And my mother didn't know what she didn't know. But her famous thing was to all of us, my job is to get you through high school and I'm done. 
And so when I came to Purdue, I was in culture shock, first of all. And then I was in complete fear because studying for college was so much more demanding than studying for high school. And so fear motivated me. And so I'm like, no, you can't give up. I need you for another four years. And it became a running joke for us. She became enamored by Dr. Bell because he took good care of me. What I didn't know until January of 2012, that Dr. Bell, Dr. Al Chiskin, who was my biology professor, who's still alive, and my mom were in cahoots. I wound up walking on to the football team in the spring of 79. My mother was worried about me playing college football. She thought it would interfere with my studies, which I know Dr. Bell planted that seed. And so the three of them triangulated on me to convince me to stop playing football. I did not learn that until I called Dr. Chiskin and let him know that my mother had passed. And he said, I'm going to tell you something that your mom swore me the secrecy back in 1979. And that was, and he was the one that convinced me to stop playing football in February of 1979. So she eventually acquired a, an appreciation for what this place could do for me if I took advantage of it. And I clearly did. In this episode, you'll hear Sean reference BOP a lot. The Business Opportunity Program, or BOP, was founded in April 1968 to broaden student access to a world-class management education. The program was one of the first and most successful of its kind at a major business school. Then-Dean John Day hired Dr. Bell to run the program during its second year. Under Dr. Bell's leadership, BOP has grown into a nationally recognized program that recruits, enrolls, educates, and provides support for both undergraduate and graduate students pursuing management careers. Over the years, BOP has provided opportunities for more than 1,400 undergraduate and graduate students. Sean explains more about BOP and what this program meant to him and how Dr. Bell's leadership within this program impacted Sean's life again and again and again. It is unbelievable how it was conceived and carried the term. After Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, the dean, I believe it was four other professors here at Cranard, who honestly were all white, came together and said, we've got to do something to help get more Black students into the business school. So that was the creation of the Business Opportunity Program. I did have an appreciation back then that the demands on an administrator of a school, i.e. a dean, and so Dean Day realized that this was not his lane, and that led them ultimately to hiring Dr. Bell out of the Gary Independent School District. Dr. Bell came down here, and his first class, I think, was 1971, which Roland Parrish was on, who the Cranard Library is named after. Dr. Bell took it from there and turned it into something unique and extra special. It's over 50 years old now. You know, some of my lifelong friends were people that I met in my class. In fact, my closest friend was in my class. And some of the other classes before me and after me have become extremely close individuals in my life at this point at 62 years of age. It's an amazing program. You start in the summer. So I graduated on a Monday. I was on campus Friday and in class on Monday. So I had less than a week of summer vacation and we took 12 hours. And the goal was to help us adapt to campus life, which it clearly did not do that. And I didn't realize that until we came in in the fall when regular school was in. 
but it gave us a base of support of people who look like me, which even to today, there aren't a lot of people who look like me on campus. And so it became a community, a community of the 78 class and the three classes before me, like big brothers and big sisters. We helped each other with studying. So my biggest obstacle coming in as a freshman was my study habits. I rode three buses in each direction to get to high school, city buses, not school buses. So I'm up at six and I'm out of the house by 635. I'm on the bus at 645 and I'm in school, depending upon the weather, 730, 745. And in football practice, I'm leaving school at 630. So if I didn't do my studying on the buses, and then if I got to school early, finish it up, it didn't get done because I was in bed by nine o'clock every night. I thought that was pretty good study habits because it worked in high school. It surely didn't work here. It's totally different. Totally different. I failed my first math exam on Bach and I had a D on my psychology test. And I started thinking Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines. And then my friends kind of say, hey, man, look, we're going to help you with this. And I caught on and it took me probably a year before I figured out what I needed to do to be successful from a studying standpoint. And that ultimately led me to Potter Library, where I spent the next three years in the mezzanine level or the basement level, basically doing all my study. And I never studied in the dorms. Too many distractions, too much noise. And in Potter, there were no windows on the lower level. So I had no perception of time. You know, I get in there, it's daylight and I start getting, oh man, it's getting dark. I've been here too long, I'd leave. There are times I come up and I go, cause I didn't wear a watch. I come up and go, wow, it's 10 o'clock. And I'm walking back to the dorm, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. That became my pattern, which contributed to my success as a student. I can tell Dr. Bell meant a lot to you. He was like a dad to me. I was honored upon his death. And I, I didn't know any of this. I was, I think there were five or six of us who Dr. Bell specifically wanted to speak at his service. And I was one of them. And I almost couldn't do it. Dr. Bell was the closest person to me in my life that was like family to me that had passed at that time. I walked into the church and I literally locked up. And it took a very dear sister of mine, Cassandra Agee, who was the first and only Black homecoming queen back in the day, who's like a big sister to me to kind of get me out of that by telling jokes. And she spoke before me and I loosened up and tried to follow her act. So that was a huge honor for me to be able to share with the audience the impact that he had on my life and lives of so many other people. He really impacted your path between Purdue and after Purdue, right? Changed the trajectory. He did. He taught me about the possibilities and he was real smart about how he did it. He would do it by asking questions. Doc Bell never told me what to do. He would question my decisions or he would ask me questions that I did not have answers to, but it made me think. It made me wonder, and I still use that same process today when I'm talking with students. For Sean, he can't reflect on just one memory or story about Dr. Bell that stands out to him, because there are way too many moments with his beloved mentor to just name one. I wish I could tell you this one story. My history with Dr. Bell is so rich, from literally hours that I would sit in his office and just talk to him. And it wasn't one way. There were times when Dr. Bell would confide in me, when Dr. Bell would talk about how much he missed his mother because he didn't have her for a very long time. 
when he and his wife Mildred lost their child and could not conceive. It was a car accident. He couldn't conceive after that. You know, she was a principal and administrator in Gary. And so their students became their kids. That was Dr. Bell's passion to, you know, me talking to him about, well, you know, I'm going to go to Dallas. He really wanted me to stay in Chicago close to the school because he thought I would lose a connection, which that was not going to happen. You know, to his infectious laugh, the photographer earlier, I was doing it for him. And and if you do it with a Bob student, all of a sudden laughter would erupt. And, you know, when he would point his finger, you know, you and I would do like this. And Dr. Bell had large hands, you know, but Dr. Bell would use the birdie finger when he pointed, which I won't do on camera. You know, so that became a running joke with the students, you know, him coming over to the dorms to have dinner with us, which was such an honor. And it was so much fun because he would sit around for a couple of hours. And I mean, we weren't talking school or grades, whatever the topic was. He was engaged and he was funny and he was charming. You know, there were times where Dr. Bell would give us a ride home if we lived in Gary or Chicago, you know, just that gracious and that helpful. You know, I honestly don't have one specific memory that I could say was better than other. You know, I do have memories of, you know, probably the last days of his life, which I cherish, but were also very difficult for me. Not in the sense that he's close to the end of his time, but realizing that he needed a lot of help physically. And I went through that with my mom about the same time. And that was emotionally really difficult for me to see this giant. I mean, you couldn't keep up with him when he was walking. And I was in really good shape back then. You know, he I mean, flew all over the place in his three-piece suits all the time and never out of place. And to see him in his final days, barely able to take care of himself was really difficult. So kind of gone from cradle to grave in terms of memories with him. And and I spoke with him the day that he passed. We knew that that would probably be his final day on this earth. So they were all wonderful. And I'll be eternally grateful for him. And Dean Day for giving him the chance to fulfill his greatness on this planet. Don't you see? This is Barbara Walters' moment. Yes, stop that. I promise it was a two-way street in this interview. When I saw Sean getting emotional about his Purdue journey and Dr. Bell, I felt the emotions too. So when it came to Sean's Purdue education, he says his experiences with Dr. Bell and Bob helped him fall in love with his studies within Craner. He explains more. I'm sort of a visual guy. You know, mathematics is not my strong suit, but this was arithmetic, adding, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And what I learned real quickly is if I can understand the principles of accounting and I did the homework, I got to a result and that felt good. And I fell in love. It was sort of like an addiction for me to get to the result. And it wasn't that difficult for me because I put the time in to study in and memorize and things like that. And one thing that was also helpful for me at Purdue is I took advantage of the TAs and the professors. So I spent a lot of time, especially the first two years here, taking advantage of office hours. And the other thing that was extremely helpful in my success was I had Bob students sophomore, junior, senior levels ahead of me. And we always shared information. And so I would go talk to them about classes and which classes to put together, you know, my schedule mix. And that was extremely helpful in helping me manage my my school load for studying and testing, not having multiple tests in one day or five tests in one week. 
was just extremely stressful. So all of that was a direct benefit of being a BOP student. We call ourselves BOPers. Sean continues to stay involved with Purdue and the Craner School of Management. He's spoken at Purdue's commencement ceremony, and he was awarded the Burton D. Morgan Entrepreneurship Award in 2012 and the Craner Business Leadership Award in 2018. I asked Sean why it's important to him to remain committed to this Boilermaker community. In part, it's an obligation. I'm obligated to do it because somebody did it for me. I know the impact it had on my life. I know how it changed me as a person. And I would not have made a lot of the decisions that I've made that have benefited me as a student and as a professional had it not been for Dr. Bell, the people that he recruited to this program. And in addition to that, the people who he invited back as professionals to talk to his students and talk about careers, that's the add-on piece of why I went into accounting and went to work for an accounting firm. He had a master's student, didn't go here undergrad, who went to work for one of the big eight accounting firms back in the day, who came in to talk about what he did. And I was sitting in the second row from the front, and I was mesmerized. He made it fun. He was funny, cracked jokes. And I remember he just went through the progression of this level. This is how much you make. This is what you do. You get promoted the next year. That was the first thing that got me. You get promoted after one year and then you get promoted after two years and blah, blah, blah. And you get up to this level as a partner. You're making, which I thought was all the money in the world. Little did I know. And I literally sat in the classroom. I said, that's what I want to do. And had it not been for him, I would have never known about the world of public accounting. At some point, I realized I didn't want to be an accountant and I didn't want to be in a big corporation because I color outside the lines. And again, I learned that being here as a student and I learned that being a bopper, if you will. And that ultimately led me into going into business for myself back in 1996. As Sean just alluded to, he left the big five public accounting world and kicked off his entrepreneurial career in the restaurant and food industry as an owner, developer, and operator of more than 30 restaurants in the Taco Bell franchise systems. Sean discusses his career path over the years and his leap of faith leaving the corporate world and going into entrepreneurship. What was that jump to entrepreneurship like? Were you scared to get out of corporate life and kind of start something new? No, I wasn't scared to get out of corporate life. I was actually thrilled. As an African-American, as a Black man, I got tired of running into brick walls. And I knew I was better than what I was experiencing. And again, an upper-class BOP student, Kelvin Pennington, who kind of went through the same process in investment banking, which I had never heard of. We were riding down. I met him and she lives in Chicago. We decided to ride down together. I was living in Dallas at the time and we're riding down in his car. And I remember asking him, I said, Calvin, what made you decide to leave this big company he worked for to starting your own private equity fund? I've stolen his statement, so I probably should patent it and whatever, <laughs> copyright. He said, I was convinced that the marketplace valued me more than the company that he worked for. And I've used that a thousand times explaining why it was easy for me to make that. I was willing to bet on me. I'll just say I spent 15 years working for two different big companies. Uh, one is a household name, even today, American Express. And the other one's Arthur Anderson, who's no longer in existence because of what happened with Enron. So I left there and became a Taco Bell franchisee. 
the one thing I knew from working in the accounting profession and doing audit and consulting services was I didn't want another job. So in other words, I didn't want to start with one restaurant and be the general manager and work in crazy hours and dealing with teenagers and customers. That's not what I wanted to do. I already had a good paying job, but I wanted to be in a position where ultimately I could create wealth. I've never had a desire to be rich, wanted to be wealthy. My definition is I work because I want to, not because I have to. That's my definition of wealthy. So I wanted to create scale and focus on what I'm really good at is infrastructure. And so my first Taco Bell was 19 restaurants. I had never bought a company or tried to become a franchisee, but who cares, right? I was actually trying to buy 52 restaurants initially, all at once, in three different cities. And that didn't come to fruition. So my first acquisition was 19 restaurants in uh, December of 1996. And interestingly enough, I closed on December 20th. And I had to unexpectedly, the day before we were scheduled to close, which was that Friday of the 20th, I got called by the bank and I needed to fly up to White Plains, New York, because the documents were lost by FedEx because there was a big blizzard in New York at the time. And the only way we were going to get all the documents executed, because there were some other documents that needed to be done, was me flying up to New York. So I dropped everything I was doing Saturday, trying to get my office set up. I land in Newark at 1.30 in the morning. That was the last flight. I didn't get to my hotel till three in the morning because the driver was lost. We wound up getting all the documents done. I fly back Friday night. Then I get home about 11. The next day, Saturday 21st, was my birthday. And I wake up 10, 11 o'clock, which I never sleep that late unless I'm sick or something like that. And I wake up by 10, 11 o'clock. I'm like, oh, it's my birthday. Oh, I got to go to work. <laughs> I was still like, oh, I got to go to work. I got a company now. That started. I had two partners at the time initially. 18 months later, I bought another 12 restaurants. Ultimately, I closed some low-performing restaurants or no-performing restaurants, built some more restaurants. My goal was to eventually be a 50-60 unit operator. And an opportunity presented itself in 2006. I was at a restaurant conference. I'll spare you details, but long and short of the story is I went from refinancing, like refinance your house, because I was ready to start doubling the size of my company. And uh, I need to think about selling all because of this conference I went to. Now I had the consultant I was using send me a valuation of the company, you know, how much was it worth if I sold it? And we had a call two days later and I told the two of them, the, the two owners, I said, look, I, I just have one question. How real is the net number after all expenses and what I'd have to pay Taco Bell and all that and paying off my debt? He goes, well, if we can't get you significantly more money than that, because it's really conservative, we won't charge you a fee. And my fee was seven figures. And I literally, we were on speakerphone at home. I literally went, pack it up, boys. I'm out of here. <laughs> and it took several months to just position myself to be able to start marketing it. And then that next year, I sold in June of 2007 at the age of 46 and retired. Sean values serving his Houston, Texas community and has served on numerous boards, including the fast casual restaurant Noodles and Company. Sean dives into more of what he's doing currently in the nonprofit space and his recent appointment on the Purdue Board of Trustees. I moved from being successful to being significant. 
success is all about the individual. It was all about me and accumulation. Significance is about what will be my legacy in life. So I've been involved in nonprofit boards since shortly after Purdue. My first board, when I was with Arthur Anderson, the partner I worked for asked me if I would consider joining the board of the Dallas Halfway House, which was for transition for ex-offenders. And that's where I got my first bite of the apple with you. And I love doing it. And then it went on to other things. Probably the highlight while I was living in Dallas was the completion of a multi-million dollar building for the African-American Museum Dallas. I was the youngest board member because of some of the stuff that I'd done and sort of my thinking. I was put on the executive committee really quick, which was really cool. And so it became more of a passion for me. And I moved to Houston. I'm large Taco Bell franchisee. The National Charity for Taco Bell, I don't know if it still is, it probably is, was the Boys and Girls Club. So I was asked to join the board in Houston. I did that for a number of years, YMCA and some other nonprofit organizations. And then I decided to go back to work in 2013, become a franchisee of another concept. And I did that for a few years and sold that a couple of years ago. That one didn't work out too good, but I learned a lot. And so I decided at some point, I can't kind of do the quilt approach with time allocation because I was getting all kind of nonprofits calling me. And I said, what are the most important things for me? It's education for minority students and healthcare for poor people. Why? Because I know you're going to ask me that. Education made the life that I live today possible. Healthcare, because where I grew up in the projects, we'd have to get on public transportation ride for an hour to go get basic clinic services until Dr. Gloria Jackson convinced the housing authority to give her a row apartment to set up a medical office, which every day, Monday through Friday, was packed from eight in the morning until three in the afternoon. And that was all these decades later, a perfect model of how to serve poor neighborhoods. And so I got invited to join the board of Memorial Healthcare System the largest healthcare system in Houston. We do over $6 billion in revenue. And so I've started having conversations with the board chair and the CEO and some of the other executives about how can we get healthcare to poor people. And it has two benefits, one for the, the healthcare system and one for the community. And one for community, it's pretty obvious. For the healthcare system, I want to say about $100 million a year is in indigent care in our budget. And a lot of that is through the emergency room. We've done studies where 50% of, at one of our hospitals in the city, over the course of a year, 50% of all the emergency room visits were primary care physician related, earache, you know, things like that. It's frustrating for the patient because I've been there as a kid. And it's frustrating for the medical staff who are dealing with people who are dying, who have major, major, major injuries, car accident or a gunshot wound. And it's a lot of friction between the patient and the caregiver. Our staff deserves to not have to, you know, manage that. And the patient deserves to get the treatment that they deserve. And that is not the kind of vehicle that we need to have in place. So that's what I'm working on there. On the education side, uh, to speak to Purdue, there have been very few years that I've not come back to campus, whether it was through my former employers, but for the most part, it's been out of my pocket. 
uh, to come speak to Dr. Bell's class while he was here. And now that Darren is running it, I've been on the Dean's Advisory Council for the number of years. And then much to my surprise, I received an appointment to the Board of Trustees, which was pretty intimidating, to be honest. <laughs> Why? It's an awesome, awesome, I don't mean like awesome, like, wow, awesome by the magnitude responsibility. This is a big business. It is huge and it's very complex. It has a lot of moving pieces. It's like trying to steer multiple aircraft carriers at the same time. I spent the last 48 hours and more meetings in terms of meeting department heads than I probably would in my business career. Probably wouldn't have that many meetings in a year. <laughs> and I was a little, how am I going to get through today? It has been so easy. I've been so impressed. It's been invigorating and exciting to hear all the things that are happening here and the plans for the future. And so uh, when uh, the chairman of the board, Mike, called me and told me on a Thursday, I was looking at a picture of me and Dr. Bell that we took in his office down the hall many years ago. And he goes, what do you think? I said, well, Mike, I'm pretty full right now. And I said, I'm looking at this picture with Dr. Bell. And my first thought is, I wish he could be here for 10 minutes just to see this. And secondly, my life has now gone full circle with Purdue University. So I'm honored. I am now really excited to get to work. It's going to take some time to get up the learning curve. But my, my, my goal, I was asked about president-elect, kind of what my goals are. And I said, well, I can't tell you right now, but my focus is to figure out what lane or lanes that I can run in, that I can have a legacy effect on the future of the university. So Sean has a lot of community, philanthropy, and nonprofit experience under his belt. And as Sean just mentioned, he is the newest member of the Purdue Board of Trustees after being appointed on July 1st, 2022. As for Sean's next giant leap, well, that answer was pretty clear. Being a trustee. <laughs> I figured that was the answer. Being a trustee, it really is. You know, I'm looking at some business ventures right now. I've been there. I've done that. You know, my role is more trying to help the entrepreneur navigate through all the uh, traps and opportunities in a shorter length of time because I've done a lot of that. But being a trustee of a prestigious university like Purdue is a whole nother level. And fortunately, I'll get to tap into everything, my whole life experience, not just the business or the school part, but the things that have made me be who I am. You know, the experiences that I've had on this campus as a student, which were both good and bad, you know, to be honest with you, to the things that I've done on other boards that I can bring to add value here and in my work ethic. I was telling a fellow trustee earlier today, I knew it was going to be a lot of work. I didn't know it was going to be two times the amount of work. <laughs> so that's, that's my next big aha is being a trustee and, and being entrusted, you know, with one of the keys to the future of this historic place. And what does this Purdue community and Boilermaker spirit mean to Sean at this point as a trustee? You know, I can't answer that question. I don't use the word can't or cannot very often. My emotions right now are so high. I'm not drinking from the fire hose. I'm not drinking from the hydro. I'm actually tapped into the water main right now. And it is coming at me so fast and at such volumes that 
I'm going to have to take a few because I got a board meeting in the next week. I'm going to have to take a few days just to hit the pause button and just start processing and start trying to figure out where I fit, what value can I add? Because it's all about adding value, whether it's adding on top of something or the consultants like to use the word pivot, (laughs) help us pivot. What relationships can I tap into to help the university? It's bigger. It's much bigger than I could have imagined. You know, I give a lot of speeches. And one of the things that I used to say is the vision that I have for myself is much smaller than the vision that God has for me. This has really tested me. (laughs) And it's really stretching me. It's stretching my imagination to the unlimited possibilities that not only this university has to offer, but what life has to offer in general. And so I'm having to reimagine and recreate my reality. As for Sean's advice to young Boilermakers, Sean recently went golfing with Darren Henry, the managing director of the Business Opportunity Program, along with some BOP students. And he shares the guidance that he told them. You know, a couple of people had scheduling conflicts. So I'm out playing golf with uh, three of the current students. I mean, they peppered me with questions the whole round. We, we played eight holes. And uh, one young man was asking about, you know, what have you seen over the years that has helped students be successful? And I would say whether it's Purdue or in life or company you work for owning your own business, a major chunk of success, however you define it, and it's different for everybody, you have to put the work in. You have to show up every day, even when you don't feel like it, but you really have to put the work in and not be a clock watcher. And understand, and this is something that Dr. Bell taught me, embrace change. I learned later in life that it is the most natural thing in life. If you fight it, you're going to lose or you're going to make your life that much more difficult. So the two things that I tell people, embrace it, learn how to make it work for you and start learning to be more observant so you can anticipate the change coming your way, whether it's good change or challenging change. It can all be good for you because a challenging change is going to stretch you. It's going to move you out of your comfort zone and help you be smarter and hopefully a better person. So that's the message I want people to hear. Work your tail off. And then probably the other thing is learn to develop authentic relationships. I used to just say learn and develop relationships. And that meant all of them. (laughs) Learn to develop relationships with people who are authentic who are real, who are honest, who have your best interests. And you may find that's not a big pool of people, but that is okay. And be quick to quit the fire and slow to hire. I use that in work, but even in your personal relationships, you know, if someone is a taker, they're constantly draining you. They always want something from you, whether it's something tangible or emotional. Those are the people you need to, you know, in a very nice way, just kind of fall out of contact with sometimes, but learn to develop authentic relationships. I am who I am because of relationships over my lifetime, going all the way back to my mother, you know, my siblings, my football coaches, Miss Deasy, teachers, and maybe something complimentary that I didn't realize about myself that gave me that spark. It may be a hand up, not a handout. Yeah, yeah, I worked hard. But working hard is not the equation. It's just a piece of it. But learn to embrace people who have your best interests at heart because it'll make all the difference in the world. 
Those are a couple of things that I share with students. Sean also shares additional words of wisdom on dreaming big and never getting too comfortable. One of the consistent things that I've experienced with people throughout my life is that people tend to put themselves in a bottle and they limit the possibilities and they limit their potential. I like to say it's because they don't dream big enough dreams. They remain comfortable, not realizing that remaining comfortable eventually is going to decline. We're seeing it today in today's economy, right? A lot of people, because of the pandemic, got big raises. If you're not only working at a big raise, right? It's being gobbled up now because of high fuel, just high fuel prices alone and high food price. The things that are a staple in your life cost you 20% more today, in some cases more. And if you try to stay constant, you're literally losing ground over time. I try to stress to people, step out of yourself and really stretch your imagination to dream bigger dreams and bigger possibilities of what you could do with your life, whether it's work, whether it's community, or whether it's your family. Think of bigger possibilities. I always say unlimited possibilities. I've never seen a computer and been a human being. So think about that. And it all starts with a dream or possibility in your imagination. Second one is it takes a lot of courage to go against. I used to say the naysayers. And I was giving this talk to some high school students and one students came up to me afterwards and said, I used to change that to haters, Mr. Taylor. (laughs) You got to learn to ignore the haters because people will be envious and jealous and won't want to see you succeed. And so stay true to yourself, true to your dreams, and just keep on trucking. And the other one is Murphy's Law. Whatever can go wrong will go. And so you have to be flexible. You have to be able to adapt, but you have to make sacrifices. Sometimes that means less sleep. Sometimes that means, you know, <laughs> I hate to say it, but there appears a time when I was in my 20s, and I was single, I was working ungodly hours where I throw a load of laundry in the washer when I got home at midnight and I get up in the morning, I throw it in the dryer. And by the time I've showered and shaved, I'm going in the dryer. It was my dresser. And I'm getting underclothes out or shirt or whatever. I was too tired to make up my bed and I'm sleeping on the mattress because the sheets are in the washing machine. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. But I was trying to stay true to my ultimate goal. So sacrifices are required. Big dreams, courage, commitment, authentic relationships. As Sean shared throughout our interview, he has had to display plenty of courage and commitment throughout his life but he's also experienced a lot of hope. You've overcome a lot in life. How do you keep going and looking towards the future? And how did you overcome all of these things to be sitting here where you are right now? Good question. I would have to say it depends on what phase of my life I was in. So I come to Purdue, I was motivated by fear, fear of failure. I didn't know what I didn't know. So I come here and I start meeting kids from walks of life that I'd never experienced, let alone seen up close and personal. And I start talking to them and I go, you live where? And your parents do what? And they make how much money? And you drive a brand new Trans Am with the Firebird on the hood and the T-tops. Y'all too young to know it. Then that's the cameraman I'm talking to. (laughs) (laughs) There were worlds that I didn't know existed other than what I would see on TV. And so I knew, it's going to sound terrible, 
I knew I didn't want to go back to the projects. And so whatever it took, I was going to do it. If it meant I was going to have to go to summer school, I would go to, which unfortunately I didn't have to do that. If it meant I was going to study all night, I was going to study all night. But I was fearful of failing, not for the sake of failing, but because of the end result would be I get kicked out of Purdue, I can't get funding, and I'm back in the projects on the south side of Chicago. And that went all the way through Purdue. In fact, I didn't know I was going to graduate. I had two C's in four years, one in English and one in my advanced cost accounting, which because I slacked off on my final, I went from a B to a C. But until I was halfway through my first semester senior year, I'm like, I'm going to graduate. And then as I started working and started getting exposed to more things, I became more aspirational. So in my early to mid-20s, and man, what do these people do to afford a house like that? What do these people do to fly first class? And so I started talking to people who were at those levels and, oh, wow, I didn't know that you could do that. Being an entrepreneur never entered my mind of owning my own business until I started running a lot of people who were doing extremely well financially and they weren't working for big companies. And so that transition for me psychologically was a lot easier. But if I could put it in, and tag it with one word, it's hope. I've never lost hope. And that gets me up in the morning and it keeps me up late at night when I have things that I have to do because I'm not focused on what I'm going through or focused on what I'm going through and how it's going to get me to ultimately where I want to be. As you probably heard, motivational, it's not about the destination. It's whatever that journey is right now. It's like flying. If I'm trying to get home and I've got to connect to a city, but it's going to get me home. And that's what I'm more focused on is getting home. Hope is a pretty powerful word if you'll embrace it. We can't thank Sean enough for sharing his story on This Is Purdue. If you'd like to watch our full video interview with Sean, head over to YouTube, youtube.com slash Purdue. Trust me, you want to see Sean's interview to truly experience it. Thanks for listening to This Is Purdue. For more information on this episode, visit our website at purdue.edu slash podcast. There, you can head over to your favorite podcast app to subscribe and leave us a review. And as always, boiler up.